Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. I'm kind of fascinated by how uh, how one kind of begins a journey uh, as a as as a DJ and as a, a radio presenter in the way that you have. Well, for me, it was um, none of it was really by design. It was quite organic, and everything's just come out of being a record collector. It's as simple as that. That. I started collecting records seriously when I was quite young. And so the circles that I travelled in were other collectors and then, of course, that translates into other DJs and people doing radio. So it all, everything for me, it was quite lucky. It wasn't a career I designed for myself. It just happened to be what I ended up doing, which was really good because it's connected to something that I'm obsessive about. <laughs> that is, uh, that's very fortuitous. Yeah. I, I actually can't believe my luck sometimes with how it's sort of spread and the different spheres with which I've been able to make a living without really ever having to have a real job as it were that's that's the dream i suppose in uh in in a lot of the arts and entertainment um even though you know we 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 joke about it not being a real job but actually it becomes a lifestyle choice i think and it's something that you have to live and breathe as opposed to being able to switch it on and off yeah i i definitely say it i mean it is a real job we've got to be cognizant of the fact that we work in spheres with people who get paid a lot less money and do a lot more hours. So I've always been, I always try to be very aware of the people that I work with, where I get to do my special little rock star bit, but without everybody else, you know, I can't do my thing. Samantha Goldie, Miss Goldie, DJ Miss Goldie, is one of the most iconic voices on Australia's PBS FM. Her show Boss Action is on PBS every Saturday night from 7 till 8pm where she spins an amazing selection of soul music. She's been collecting soul music for decades, spinning them for just as long, and this week she graces the chat cave with her story. You can find Boss Action on Facebook and at pbsfm.org.au slash bossaction. And that very same web browser can be used to go to www.comingupnext.com.au where you can find all the links you need to subscribe to Coming Up Next to hear interviews with some of the world's top creatives like the soulful voice of this week's guest, Miss Goldie. You have quite an amazing voice. Was it, was it something that you were always kind of... <laughs> Something you were always told, uh, you, sh- you know, you should, uh, you should be doing something with your voice. Yes, yes. I can't tell you how many people have said that I should do phone sex. <laughs> and uh, I just sort of say, well, 
does the words hurry up sound sexy? <laughs> so, because I do get a lot of phone calls and there's two very different camps of people that call me or text me when I do my show and that is it's either about the music or about my voice, which right. I've always thought quite funny because my voice is like this because I smoke too many cigarettes and um, I have a thyroid condition. Mm. An inactive thyroid, which has lowered the timbre of my voice. Mm. I forget that it's um, not a normal voice. I get called Mr. on the phone an awful lot. But it's a signature voice. People know me from it. I, I can't hide. If you know Melbourne Radio, I've got a kind of amusing story that I had to fess up to. Some years ago, there's a wonderful woman, Sister Bibi, who was on PBS for years and is now on Triple R. And she also has a very deep voice. And people often will get us confused. And when I got my show, people were often insistent on the phone that it was actually Sister Bibi. <laughs> I just say, yep, I've just changed my musical genre. And I go under the guise of Miss Goldie. But one day I was at my local coffee shop and it was at the back of my house and I just dashed around. It was next to the P.O. box, so where I go every day to pick up my records. So I'm standing there and I've got a record and I look a mess. I've got our boots on. I've, got, I've actually got my pyjamas rolled up underneath my dress. And I order my coffee and this woman goes, oh, my God, are you Miss Goldie? And I went, no, I'm Sister Beepy. <laughs> <laughs> and I eventually told her that story, actually only last year, uh, just to say if you ever look a bit shabby, you've got a free pass to say you're me. <laughs> it is definitely a signature voice. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but certainly for me as I've gotten, you know, through my 20s and now into my 30s, I'm, I'm certainly feeling like the things that make me stand out are, as you say, my signature kind of things. And they're the things that I'm really starting to embrace now um, after probably years of trying to fit in or, or um, maybe make them a little bit smaller. Do you feel as though that was there was kind of this coming to accept that part of you um, because it was something that was different or, or unique to you or do you feel as though it's something that you've always embraced? I've always liked my voice. I mean, it, it's always been deep and uh, not particularly girly. So I, I'm a tall woman. It sort of suits my stature, I think. It took me a lot of years of people, for some reason, it's a very intimidating voice. So that being labelled as sort of a bossy or an outspoken woman in a negative way, I sort of attribute a lot to the sound of my voice because it's not girly and feminine. That was sort of irritating, but I just sort of at the end of the day, you sort of realise, well, the people who know you, know that, uh, you know, that's not me. And so once you get to know me, you're not as intimidated. But it, my voice and my stature always intimidate people. 
it's one of the things kind of never figured out. <laughs> People would say, oh, I was so scared of you when I first met you. And I, you know, it's like, well, why? I was perfectly friendly. Um, maybe I'm just not very good at chit chat. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I think that could be perhaps the case. You know, I'm doing a very public thing and it stems from a very nerdy, insular, socially awkward thing like record collecting. Was uh, working in a kind of public space, was that something that you, I know you said it wasn't, uh, this isn't a career that you've kind of had by design, more kind of uh, an organic sort of evolution, but was working in the arts and the entertainment in a kind of public setting something that you always wanted to do? I went through art school and um, I've always liked art, music, that sort of thing. Certainly not public. I hate publicly speaking, which is quite funny because radio I'm totally at ease because I'm by myself. No one's watching me. As soon as you put me on a stage to talk, I get very nervous. And I do get nervous in front of large groups of people up on a stage but that leaves me very quickly once I start playing music because I just get into the music and um, I'm all right so it was not something you know I uh, the public thing is actually quite weird sometimes and the fact that my voice gives me away usually there's some anonymity with radio but my voice being so distinctive, there just isn't. Mm. And uh, people know who I am in the most unlikely of places. And sometimes you don't want that. You know, if I go to the doctor, the receptionist picked my voice immediately. I don't want to have a chit-chat. I'm not feeling well. I'm going to the doctor. <laughs> I don't want to be Miss Goldie. <laughs> yeah. How do you kind of uh, uh, meet that? Do you kind do do you you know, accept it and kind of put on the happy face or do you kind of um, rebel against it? No, I've, I've got to say I always try to be personable because um, really it comes back to what I was saying before. You know, I'm really lucky to be able to do what I want to do I uh, with my work as a DJ, with my work with the Lucas Group as their playlist curator. I manifested a job that didn't exist. And so to then turn around and be gruff with people because they know who you are, that just, it, that doesn't sit well. Mm. So I always try to be polite and personable. I mean, if you're going to be an arsehole to me, I probably won't be. That's, that's, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, that's so, probably fair enough. Yeah, but nobody has. You know, I like meeting people. And I like that I switch people onto this music that I'm so obsessed with and which is within the soul sphere, still one of the really underplayed, underrepresented sort of um, umbrellas of soul mm. within Australia. So it's fantastic. What was it or what is it rather about soul music that really gets you going? Um, oh. I really like the, the raw honesty of the music that I collect. I'm not, I, 
I'm not really interested in modern music, and I don't think I have been since perhaps the birth of hip hop. So, with with the records that I collect, it's raw. It's very little production. It relies on the band being tight and good at their job. The singer making a, a sort of doing a good performance, and the writers writing a good song, and when the three come together it's just magical and even the imperfections are brilliant you know hearing somebody drop it the drummer drop a drumstick you know that it's so raw and the fact that people took these reel-to-reels they pressed up a 45 themselves they tried to break into the market they were not successful because they either didn't have the radio play or were putting out a record themselves and just couldn't sell it, couldn't get it onto the market, even though it was fantastic. To now get it and play it on radio is fantastic. You know, I I just delight in it. And I'm also, I suppose, a, a fetishist for the object itself. I love these really plain looking labels the the private presses they've got virtually no information it's a hunt to find them it's a hunt to find out about them just the whole i just love the whole thing about it i think the romance of soul music is uh is is quite extraordinary and i suppose i'm a lover of soul music probably on a fairly basic level but to kind of hear someone who has uh, you know a very deep knowledge and passion for it talking about it is really amazing i didn't quite realize the narrative of um of, of some of these records i i imagine particularly in as it's kind of becoming uh, popular popularized in in like the 60s and the 70s um you know it's it must have been quite a, a shit fight to, to to get some of that music out into the world for some of the some of the um, artists. Well, a lot of them. I mean, payola existed back then, so you really had to bribe to get your records onto air. I remember when I met Eddie Bow, and I was a massive fan of his. So to get to DJ before him, to get to meet him. Talked to him on radio. I interviewed him on uh, DJ Manchild's show. And there I was with a stack of records that he'd done himself, that he'd written. And there was a record we're talking about, uh, a guy called Gus the Groove Lewis, and he was a radio announcer. And um, we were talking about him because he played a lot of Eddie Bowe's records. But there's actually a song that called Let the Groove Move You, and it's written by Gus the Groove Lewis, but in actual fact, Eddie Bowe wrote it. And to be able to get radio play, he essentially gave away his royalties to this particular record. Yeah, wow. To get on air. I mean, it was incredibly cutthroat. There's stories of, um, you know, the mafia in Chicago hanging Jackie Wilson by his ankles over a ledge until he re-signed to Brunswick. I mean, there was money in this. And the thing is, is that there was just so much talent and everybody was making records. That's the other thing. In my lifetime, I'm not going to get to hear it all. And that in itself makes it 
an immensely exciting sort of genre to collect. A lot of stuff, you know, if you collect Australian Garage, that's finite. It happened in certain years and there's a certain number of records. Soul went for decades and there are millions and millions of records. And things are still being unearthed. You know, a band made a record, they pressed it up privately, sold a few at their shows, disbanded, and the bass player has 300 in his basement. Hmm. It, it takes somebody to hunt them down, do the research, find those records and get them out. And this, this is still happening. You know, it's um, this huge gold mine and wealth of music. And uh, that's a, just as a collector, it's both frustrating and fantastic. <laughs> it's depending on how you feel. Some days I'll go to do my radio show and I'll start pulling out records. Oh, my God, I've just got too many amazing records. I don't know what to play. Two weeks later, I've got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I've got nothing. You know, and it's... Uh, and I think everybody is like that and it's all about, you know, the new ones you want, the ones you're chasing. I, I once said years ago to somebody who asked me about searching for records, looking for a record is like dog years, you know, and I really feel like that, you know, one year it feels like seven. Hmm. You know, the hunt for them, you know, you can hunt for years for a record and then it turns up and you're the second highest bidder. And then six months later, another one turns up and it's just so totally out of your price range, you realise you're never going to own it, you know, because a record can go from being $150 to $1,000 in a very short space of time. It just needs two other people like me and it's off. So then you have to say no. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to ever get that record unless I can find it cheap or hunt down the band or do these things so you search for something else. You know, it's this constant sleuthing for records. Do you remember the first record that you ever listened to, the first I guess piece of soul music maybe even um, Oh, soul. Where uh, and that kind of gave you that uh, inspiration, I suppose. Actually, yes, I do. And it was buying a copy, probably maybe 1981, 1982, of Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools. But it wasn't Chain of Fools that grabbed me. It was the ballad on the other side called Prove It. And... I sort of grew up with punk rock and I, I grew up in a slightly unconventional family and punk was my perfect rebellion for someone who'd sort of lived out of the conventional sort of Brady Bunch family. And so going from punk rock to this really sad music, it really suited me. I, you know, I'd already had my first love and had my heart broken and... To this day, the deep soul, the slow records, the heartbreaking records really resonate with me a lot more than um, the dancers. And invariably, it's the slower 
more painful sounding records mm. that I'll go the absolute extra mile to find. There's something very uh, beautiful and magnetic about that kind of really deep, raw, honest um, expression. Yeah, when you can hear the heartbreak in someone's voice, it's just phenomenal. You know, and the thing with with dance floor records, there were so many hits and the the buying public, the black buying public were really savvy. They knew a good song and you can buy so many good records that are not rare uh, because they charted. And, um, you know, if, if a record charted in somewhere like Chicago, that could mean that, you know, that Etta James record, there's 50,000 of them were pressed, you know, phenomenal numbers. So it's the, because I've always been interested in the, the smaller regional presses, sure, a, a, a Chicago regional press that's a hit, there's a lots of coffees. But if it came out of Buffalo or, you know, a small city, there's not going to be that many. And it's the the ballads, it's the B-sides that invariably I'm chasing. Do you remember the first record that you owned? I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's very telling about me. And it was, <laughs> it's quite funny. It was Charles Aznavour, Dance the Old Fashioned Way. And <laughs> it was a 45, and what made me want it was actually the label. It was on the Barclay label, which had this beautiful sort of 1950s atomic design. And my other passion is um, 50s furniture and curtains and stuff like that. So it was sort of my, my two obsessions neatly rolled into one. <laughs> That's very cool. I also remember the first record I ever thrashed relentlessly, and that was when my mum was in hospital having my sister. So I would have been seven, and I was left alone, and I was allowed to use the record player. And it didn't end well. I ended up breaking the needle. But I thrashed the pants out of John Lennon's Instant Karma 45. Ah. But... Also, I was absolutely obsessed with the flip, which was Yoko Ono. And it, the track is called Who Has Seen the Wind? And really, YouTube it. It's shocking. Yeah. It is so out of tune. <laughs> but there was something about it that really fascinated me. And, um, you know, there's shades of that kind of Yoko Ono in some of the, the sweet soul. That I'll, I, you know, there's some just quirky records where they're singing off key and, you know, the guitar's not quite tuned. And instead of putting you off, it, it sort of adds to the, the, the gorgeousness of the lushness of these tracks. The, the imperfections, the quirks really make it lovely. I suppose it's kind of where we were kind of starting the conversation and um, talking about really kind of owning who you are and those kind of quirks that you have that make people unique and not striving for perfection in that, but actually just being completely in that and, and confident with that and allowing that to kind of be part of the art. Perfection is... I, I think overrated, and I don't actually know how it could be 
sort of achieved. There's always a sliding scale. And um, the imperfections in things and uh, in what I do, if I'm creating a playlist or DJing to a crowd, you know, I often get asked, what's the perfect set? Well, there is no perfect set because I could pack the same box of records, you know, 10 times and I wouldn't necessarily play the same records in order. Certainly there would be, I quite often have pairs that I get infatuated with and I'll play, there'll be records that I think go well together or there's bridging records. But it it always just depends on your mood, depends on the mood of the dancers, where you think they need to go or indeed if I'm playing music at a bar, you know, what I think is appropriate. So, you know, sometimes they are imperfect, but it, it's okay. There's always next time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as long as, you know, I don't really fuck up. <laughs> I can swear, can't I? Of course. So how did you become a DJ, um, you know, I, I was reading that you studied photography, and you said um, that you were that you had studied arts, and yeah. it just all kind of happened as this organic process. And I imagine at some point of collecting records for years and years, and listening to them, and probably you know DJing in your own living room, you somehow transitioned into doing it for a dollar here and there, and eventually it became something that you now do. Um, as, as as a living? Yeah, look, I mean, I was reticent in the 90s because, they, you know, I mean, it was hard enough being a female collector. There really weren't that many. And I have to say, I, I met in Sydney in the 90s when I was DJing three women who were all 45 collectors. And that was just fantastic. With regards to DJing, it was the realisation that, well, I've got records, and if I can say arrogantly, sometimes I go, I've got better records than them. Why don't <laughs> I DJ? And so, yeah, you know, yes, you DJed at home, you DJed at friends' parties, and then it became more. And um, you you played, you know, I, I would play at Get Down, a funk party, and then I just sort of, People would ask, oh, do you want to play here? Do you want to play there? And then I realised that I could make a living playing records. And when I moved to Melbourne nine years ago, that was my sole reason for moving here, was that music and soul music was so much bigger than Sydney. And I could feel that, I mean, Sydney could be incredibly hard work. Uh, maybe you'd get the work. Maybe they wouldn't pay you. And Sydney was faddish and I had a feeling that, you know, the fad of retro music would leave. And it, indeed it did for a while. So I started being asked, I mean, I'm, I'm a very lazy person. I don't, I suppose you could say I'm lucky because I never really chased any work. It just sort of came with me. And I did radio in Sydney as well on Eastside Radio. So radio was something that I always wanted to do. And it's 
a perfect forum for someone like me as a collector because I like a lot of slower records that are really no good for, um, I mean, I can DJ them out at bars, but, you know, Solar Go-Go, the dance party things that I do, up-tempo records. So radio, bar DJing just seemed like a good idea. Mm. I know I'm making it sound like I just fell into this. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it, it really was quite lucky. And I suspect I was a novelty for a, a lot of years because I was a woman. But because I've been a serious collector, I mean, it has been interesting over the years supporting, you know, your heroes, I I'm very good friends now with Keb Daj, who is a very big DJ collector from the UK that I supported. And, um, you know, he was relatively dismissive of me when he first met me. He met me with a bunch of boy collectors, but he realised that I was serious about my records. And same sort of can be said for, you know, the, the band of the, the Dap Kings from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. You know, I supported them many times when they've come out here and interviewed them and I always give them a mixtape whenever they come out mm. and they play it on the road. And it's really, um, I've been lucky enough to sort of shape the music that they make, you know, and was quite startled when Gabe Roth said on my radio show when I interviewed him that playing my mixtapes influenced him writing records, writing wow. songs. So it became, you know, it's this gorgeous thing. I mean, I can I can give these people, these immensely talented people, you know, my obscure soul records that they wouldn't otherwise maybe stumble across. That said, they're all record nerds. And have them make songs that I in turn get to play on radio. And that's just incredibly amazing. It's a very small world, the soul world. You know, you've supported some of the biggest acts of all time in uh, in soul music. People like, you You know, you mentioned Sharon Jones and, and the Dap Kings and Charles Bradley and Syl Johnson, Betty Harris, that people of this kind of top echelon. Uh, have you noticed anything that's kind of consistent across the board with the way that they create their music or is it kind of, uh, you know, um, unique to each individual? Sharon Jones has to kind of stand apart from that because they're contemporary. So, look, I, I don't know. One thing I will say is the constant amazement from these artists that a whole completely different generation of white kids loves their music and that it's resonated and, and held its currency, as it were. I mean, Irma Thomas came out here a few years ago and she is, without a doubt, one of my favourite singers. You know, she had her, the, I mean, it was a chartered record, Ruler of My Heart. You know, it's the, the opening lyrics, Ruler of My Heart, Driver of My Soul. You know, I just related to that immediately. When she performed here, she came up onto stage with a book. And what it was was 
all of the songs she'd ever recorded. And she said, I hear you guys like the older stuff. If you want to hear anything, yell it out. I yelled out a lot. She was like, you know my records. <laughs> and I think at one point I was simultaneously smiling, crying and singing along. It was an immensely emotional experience because she just did all of these songs that, you know, I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of times um, and to get to hear a singer sing them. A lot of them, you know, I mean, with people like Syl Johnson, his music was amazing because so much of it was about the social condition and the struggle and these songs resonate today. His song, Is It Because I'm Black, really could have been written today. That's sad and depressing that so little has changed. But, you know, I would say that that's one of the most interesting things about the artists that I've seen perform, that, you know, that the songs aren't dated. The, the themes aren't dated mm. in the music. I can't sort of draw across and make a generalisation because singers weren't necessarily singing songs that they penned. You know, I mean, I've got to say for all the DJing, it's actually doing radio that's incredible. You know, getting to interview people like Dennis Coffey or a Booker T or, you know, having Marva Whitney in your studio Eddie Bow, you know, I mean, it's so much more unlikely for me to meet my musical idols because they recorded so long ago and because I live in Australia. If I lived in England, the English have been hunting down performers for years and years. I mean, Terry Callier, the amazing jazz folk singer, his version of Cotton Eye Joe, I put in my top 10 of all-time tracks. His lines, dying is easy, it's living that's pain, makes me cry every time I play it. <laughs> it's, his voice is amazing. But he was rediscovered pumping gas at a service station, hunted down by an English guy who said, we love your records. Will you come and perform at a Soul Weekender? Because um, Look At Me Now and Ordinary Joe are big hits on the soul scene. And he had a second career because of it. And there are a lot of soul artists like that, that their career was resurrected on songs they'd even forgotten they recorded and I think that's really marvellous. And over the years on, uh, you know, forums like Soul Source, which is, you know, a forum for talking about records and music and buying and selling records, you know, the amount of fundraisers for artists who have died in poverty and the soul community, everybody just chucks in what they can afford and get headstones and things like that for these artists. And I love that. I love that the community now, 
are able to give these artists careers and quite often they didn't really have successful careers to begin with. You know, they never had major hits and um, that people love the music enough that they want to look after and honour these artists. And I think that's incredibly special and beautiful and a great thing to be a part of. What do you think the importance of something like PBS as a public broadcasting um, forum has for not only someone like you to have a platform to share this kind of music with the public, but also for the public to be able to have an alternate source that's not necessarily entirely commercially driven um, and to be able to discover some amazing music that they otherwise may not have. I think it's immensely important. You know, community radio is really that. It really services a community and looks to... The people that want to step outside of just the mainstream way of looking, and um, and that goes with you know the, all sorts of community radio. When it comes to music, I think it's really important and really exciting. And as a woman, I love it because it encourages other women. You know, there's a DJ Lady Soul, Carol. She started off as a listener to my show. You know, I met her. She thought it was amazing uh, that I was a woman and a soul DJ, you know, and she started collecting records. She'd always been into music, but she'd had her kids. They'd grown up, and now she DJs and, um, you know, sponsors casquillion amounts of shows, puts so much music, uh, sorry, so much money back into PBS. And it gave her a forum, and I love that, the, the amount of women that have said, you really inspired me, um, makes me feel really pleased. It means another generation of women come through going, you know, this isn't, it doesn't have to be male-dominated, and if it is male-dominated, who cares? You know, I'm, you know, I want to be involved and I'll get good at what I do and not be intimidated by that. And radio and women on radio play a big part of that. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Samantha Goldie, DJ Miss Goldie, for, uh, <laughs> for being on my show. It's, uh, That's it's, all right. It's really been an eye-opening um, or ear-opening <laughs> conversation about... DJing and record collecting is some really amazing things that I hadn't even really considered as a uh, as a kind of general punter. And if there are any women out there listening who'd like to uh, become a DJ on PBS, you have your encouragement now. Um, I end every conversation with one question, and that question is, what makes you silly? Oh, I'm going to be honest with you, Alistair. I've been dreading that because... <laughs> No, 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 not for the reason you think. Oh, yeah. Because, um, as you know, my cat had to be uh, put to sleep a week ago. And the answer to that question, actually, my cat, mm. and, um, and now I'm not going to get all melancholy on you, 
But I will say, what makes me silly? I'm a cat lover, an absolute cat lover. And um, they're the creatures that make me do silly things, sing silly songs, make up stories for them, do little dances, because I just love acting like a complete idiot to a creature that gives you the yeah what look. <laughs> <laughs> and can I have a pat now? Have you stopped? But that is my answer. It's, um, I mean, it was my cat up until a week ago. Um, most definitely for years was the, the, the brunt of some ridiculous songs quite often to what's that Barry Copacabana I love to sing to my cat <laughs> making up different lyrics about her using Copacabana I don't know why but there you go <laughs> it's got a good uh, it's got a good cadence yes maybe that's it and I could also do a stupid dance to it I could have fake maracas <laughs> I can uh, I can relate a hundred percent across the board to what you're saying. I um I had a, a dog um, who I also um, had to put to sleep earlier in the year, and he was uh, I like to pretend that he was my alter ego. Um, so I would often sing ridiculous songs that I would make up to him and give him ludicrous nicknames, and he'd just kind of look at me with this unconditional love and say, "I just want a pat." Yeah, they do. But yes, I know. I mean, our cat's name was Lily or Fuffin von Lublub <laughs> or Bongo Sanamaposa. <laughs> and Bongo stuck actually for about the last year and a half. We pretty much just called it Bongo. Bongo. You know. <laughs> well, I'm sure Bongo and Bob are playing together now with their ridiculous Oh, well, no, songs. she swiped his nose leather. So. Uh, <laughs> 